Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success. And practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. It's great to be back with you here on our final show for the first half of the year. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show knows that we go on summer hiatus for July and August. Uh, so following this show, we will be on summer hiatus, returning with a full live lineup starting back on September 10th. So over the summer, as you're uh, reading and catching up with back issues of whatever magazine you subscribe to, uh, you can include the Nonprofit Coach in your catch-up. Uh, if you go to tedhart.com, click on radio links, you'll be able to go to hundreds of podcasts, uh, including our top 10 podcasts of all time here on the Nonprofit Coach. We've got a full show for you here today and great page two experts. Uh, as the announcer noted, you can call in and ask questions of our page two experts by dialing 347-324-3080. You can also join us over in the chat room, and I do see some folks over there. Folks, you can type out your questions there if you prefer, or you can email me today at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. First up here on the Nonprofit Coach, over in page one news, you can follow along by going to tedhart.com and click on radio links. You will find three ways to prepare for video on Instagram. Uh, they have announced uh, that uh, they will be adding video. Uh, it, if you compare the growth of Vine to the flatline Instagram over the last 30 to 60 days, uh, it's not surprising uh, that uh, they want to jump in and use their once darling photo service also for video. So what you want to do is review your current Instagram and Vine strategies. Uh, avoid a forced channel migration. If Vine is working, you probably want to continue working with Vine. And consider assigning dedicated responsibilities. So given the mobile nature of Instagram, consider deleting, uh, uh, delegating management uh, to one trusted staffer, preferably someone with an artistic eye. Uh, so all of that is over in the radio links today, and that comes to us from social media today. Uh, next up over in the radio links today, it is now summer. Uh, that is one of the reasons why we go on summer hiatus, so everybody can enjoy uh, their summer. But you do want to make sure that you are protecting your technology uh, over the summer. So uh, over uh, coming to us from Mashable are four ways to protect your technology this summer. Now, first of all, of course, is to watch 
the temperature, extremely warm or cold temperatures, can have a noticeable effect on your phone's battery display uh, and synthetic housing components. Uh, that's uh, even more of a possibility with uh, uh, what they call heat-related death of your technology. So you want to make sure that uh, uh, you want to avoid that. And if it does get overheated, do not put it in the refrigerator or the freezer. Uh, get it out of the sun and try to cool it down, perhaps with a fan. And uh, uh, you want to make sure that your laptop also perhaps even has an additional laptop fan. Uh, use uh, protection. Um, uh, another concern is water damage. Uh, while your current cell phone case protects against damage from uh, dropping your phone, it will have little protection when it comes to uh, liquid or dust or sand, which often can happen. So uh, there are some uh, folks out there, smart skin uh, for uh, smartphones. Uh, is a way for you to uh, cover your phone if you think that you're going to be in some questionable areas. You also want to make sure that you uh, keep it dry, and there is a group called Dry Case uh, that uh, will help keep uh, all of your uh, uh, technology dry during the summer. Um, so read all about it over in the radio links today. Again, uh, making sure that your technology makes it through the summer as well as we hope that you do as well. That's over at tedhart.com. Click on Radio Links. You'll also find uh, over in uh, the radio links today um, the art of getting retweets. Uh, a successful small business owner, uh, you want to make sure that uh, you are actively utilizing your Twitter account, or in this case, a nonprofit uh, executive who is trying to get their word out. Well, we've got some uh, uh, techniques here for you to read all about. Again, this comes to us from social media uh, today. Uh, and uh, so uh, the friends over at Quicksprout um, are providing you with some uh, valuable information on uh, tags versus retweets uh, and how you can improve the likelihood of your takeaways me being meaningful for your organization, uh, including, uh, here's a, a good tip, including pre please retweet. In your tweet has a 51% retweet uh, rate um, and uh, that's spelling it out because please RT uh, in tests showed that they had a 39% retweet rate. Uh, so read all about that. In addition to, as we've shared with you many times here on the Nonprofit Coach, try to limit your tweets to 100 characters because that leaves room for the RT, the retweet, to comment, and the user's name. So uh, try to keep those tweets down to 100 characters over the summer. And let's see if you can't come out of the summer with uh, a larger audience of people uh, following you over on Twitter. Uh, you can read all about that in the radio links. Also in the radio links, we're just uh, drawing attention to our nonprofit coach uh, favorite podcast. Uh, this week, we're drawing attention to Gail Perry and uh, her show uh, that uh, was on the uh, the nonprofit coach, and we're providing you with a direct link. Uh, to her very popular show of a year ago here on the Nonprofit Coach. And don't forget, as you're preparing for the summer, as we said before, uh, take this as an opportunity to catch up on all the wonderful uh, favorite podcasts from prior shows here on the Nonprofit Coach. With that, it is time for us to head on over to page two. Now, we have two fantastic guests for you here on the Nonprofit Coach for our pre-summer show. Uh, first up, uh, and they'll be joining us together, so I'll introduce them together. Jennifer Fila is here. She's the president and founder of Aspire Research Group. She combines her research and frontline fundraising experience to assist organizations across the country that are concerned about finding the right prospects, worried about what size gift to ask for, and struggling to meet major gift goals. Uh, Jen has received a bachelor's from Newman University as a member of the Association of, Fundra of uh, Professional Researchers for Advancement and the Association of Fundraising Professionals. She's a former trustee of Habitat for Humanity of Delaware County and the Center Foundation. I also want to uh, introduce for you today Helen Brown, who is the president of the Helen Brown Group, a full-service prospect research consulting uh, firm working with clients globally. The largest consulting firm of its kind, HBG, is headquartered in Watertown, Massachusetts, and has nine employees with offices in four states. 
Prior to finding, uh, founding the Helen Brown Group in 2002, Helen directed advancement research departments at Northeastern University and Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, Helen has a development prof- has been a development professional since 1987, when she became a prospect researcher at her alma mater, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, ladies, it is really a pleasure to welcome you here, and of course, uh, you are uh, co-authors of a terrific new book that I want you to introduce here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach. Today is our AFP Wiley uh, Radio Series show, which is part of a year-long promotion. Uh, and a uh, program that we have with AFP and Wiley for terrific new books. So welcome here uh, to the nonprofit coach, Helen Brown and Jennifer Fila. Thanks Thanks so much. much. (laughs) It's great (laughs) to have you. Uh, yeah, it's great to have you here. I mean, and what a what a terrific topic to go into into the summer. I guess there's there's really no best time. We're all prospecting all of the time, but summer is a great time to get out and have some casual time uh, with your donors, and it's also a, a terrific time for you to prepare for the fall campaigns. And of course, preparing for the fall campaigns, big part of that is prospect research. Absolutely. It absolutely is, and as a matter of fact, uh, Jen and I both got an email this morning from someone who said that they were going to be taking our book with them on vacation so that they could have something to read on the beach, and I thought that that was just a great idea to get prepared for the fall. It, it really is a, a, a great idea, so why don't we uh, start off, I think that's Jennifer, is that right? Uh, that was Helen. Oh, it's Helen. Okay, sorry, Helen. Okay, so um, Helen, why don't we start off with you in sort of uh, uh, bring the book in. Um, tell us a little bit about the book and why you folks uh, wrote that, and then uh, and then we'll have uh, Jennifer uh, provide some insight as well. Well, actually, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to throw it to Jen because she was actually the one who um, was approached about this and really um, got the whole ball rolling. So, if you don't mind, I'll throw it over to Jen. Great. Absolutely. Um, thanks. Thanks, Helen. I was really excited when the Association of Fundraising Professionals started looking for an author to write a book about prospect research because there really wasn't a book out there that was directed at fundraisers. So prospect researchers can often tolerate a lot of dry material. Fundraisers are people people, and they really want to find the most important information to get out there and talk to donors. So excited to write it for fundraisers and excited also to bring in someone like Helen who has just this depth of experience, especially with you know really large shops. And I think sometimes smaller organizations feel like they can't do prospect research because you know they don't have the resources of a, a large school. Or hospital, and it's just not true. So Helen and I work together to really debunk that and provide everyone with tools that can be used. Would you, Helen? Agree? Let's jump. Let's jump over there because I, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're 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 really hitting the nail on the head that there are so many organizations out there who are fearful that they don't know enough about their prospects, but they also have sort of discounted that they really can't do research the way uh, other organizations are able to successfully research. So, Helen, what can be done, and what is the difference between large and small shops? Well, that's a really great question. And one of the things that Jen and I discovered um, through our partnership in writing this book was um, that that our experience, Jen's primarily with small and medium-sized organizations and mine with medium and large-sized organizations, really meshed really well. And places where we thought that, you know, there might have opportunities where we wouldn't agree, the beautiful thing was that we were able to really, um, each of us were able to learn from the other about um, areas that we weren't all that familiar. And so the book actually became um, much more rich than it would have been if just one of us had written it. Um, and I think that that's one of the really nice things about it is that it really doesn't matter what size shop you work in, um, that the book will be able to help you and give actually you know, some concrete ideas for 
great prospecting ideas, um, great uh, ways to manage prospect management, even if you're a one-person shop or if you've got a huge prospect management um, capability, um, and data analytics, even, you know, if you're, again, if you're a one-person shop, we included um, tips and tricks in there for somebody to just do some quick and easy data mining all the way up to really sort of complex ideas about how data mining and modeling can be used if an organization is much more, um, has, has more capacity for that. So we really tried to include lots of examples um, really concrete examples and ideas, some tips and tricks, um, and then, of course, um, lots and lots of resources of other places that people could go for more information, too. And in and, and doing, uh, providing that kind of uh, background, in ter what sorts of um, research is available? Research for... For prospects, so so in the the resources area, what what okay. kind of research can actually be done? Do you want to take that, Helen? Or sure. Well, I mean, when just in the very beginning, when when an organization is just trying to figure out who are our best prospects, whether they've got a database of you know fifteen people or fifteen million people, it really doesn't matter. Sort of as a fundraiser going through your database one person by one person by one person, it's going to be really slow get going. It's just, it's not a very efficient way of trying to identify new prospects. Um, so one of the ways that prospect research can help and prospect identification is really important is by doing it by looking at the database as a group, right? So one of the best ways of doing that is, of course, to do a database screening. And for organizations that haven't done a database screening, it can be an incredibly powerful tool to, um, to help float up some of those prospects to the top. And a lot of organizations that I talk to say, oh, we already know our best prospects. They're, you know, we've been going back to the same people for the last 15 years. And then I start talking to them about attrition. Um, so tell me about your well, attrition rates in your database. Right, and, and, and I want to just jump in here because I, I absolutely agree with you, and I have yet to advise a nonprofit organization who went through this process who did not identify people that they had no idea uh, had true wealth. So I want to focus on what does this kind of screening mean. This is something that is electronic, and it's something that is done externally to the organization, right? That's absolutely right. Okay. So, so walk us through that process. What does that look like? What can the cost be? And why is it such an important uh, budgetary item for a nonprofit when they're going to get started? Well, it's so the basic way that it happens is that an organization contracts with a database screening company, um, and they provide their database um, the you know, the, the names, the address, the contact information in their database. And the vendors will all give you um, the, the parameters, the, the fields that they need to see the information in. Um, so the information gets sent off to the screening company, and it gets matched to information in their database. It's all publicly available information. There's no sort of, you know, secret scary stuff in there. It's all stuff that's right, publicly available. Right, that's going to concern a board of directors is going to say, okay, well, what, what are we doing here? And, you know, are, is this going to come back and haunt us? Are people going to be concerned that we're doing some sort of super secret sleuthing on, on people that just makes everybody nervous? Is, is that a concern? that our listeners today don't really need to be concerned about? It is something that they absolutely do not need to be concerned about because the vendors are not allowed to sell and we're not allowed to buy um, information that is not publicly available information. So, um, And, of course, we all have to abide by codes of ethics, either the APRA Code of Ethics or the AFE Code of Ethics. So the information that we are sourcing is all information that's been pre-vetted to, to only be publicly available. For example, information um, that is in assessor's offices databases. So that's, you go down to your county assessor's office and you get the assessment on a property. Um, you find out the fact that someone um, is a director or executive of a publicly held company. 
um, or that they are an owner of a privately held company. Um, it's it's information that's like that that's available. I think that sometimes the thing that makes people nervous is that now all of a sudden it's aggregated in one place, um, and that's the thing that I think makes people nervous. But um, it's it's not being sourced on anything that's that's not already out there that anybody couldn't go right. and, and so, find. So for for listeners who may not be familiar, what is uh, APRA Code of Ethics, what is AFP Code of Ethics, what are those organizations, and and by subscribing to those Code of Ethics, what does it say about the use of this data? Can I jump in and answer that one? Please. I, I, get, I get a lot of questions um, about the ethics of pulling all that research together, whether it's through a vendor that does a large screening or um, you know, when we individually, when we look specifically at one individual and pull information from public sources. And the, the APRA Code of Ethics is specific to researchers. And it says things like, if you're going to, let's say, call the tax assessor's office to verify information about a property, you need to identify yourself. And I always tell people, if you need to be anonymous, then you probably shouldn't be asking the question. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it covers things like that, you know, the specific, more specific about researching. Um, AFP, the Association of Fundraising Professionals, is all about donor rights. Um, there's actually, you know, when we talk about a code of ethics, um, AFP goes way deep and gives you specific examples for each of its tenets. Um, but I think the rule of thumb that we all go by, whether we're a frontline fundraiser or an individual researcher, is will the information we find further the relationship with the prospect with the donor? And that that's kind of a nice rule of thumb that covers a lot of things. We've seen a lot of organizations getting sued now um, by donors who feel that their gift was not administered properly. And in times like that, all of the records that we're holding may become open. Um, and I... I would never want a donor prospect to read a prospect profile or read a database record and be uncomfortable with the information that was found. So is that sort of a rule of thumb that, um, say, a specific donor, um, if they were to gain access to your print files and your digital files on that prospect, that there would be nothing in that file that would embarrass them? True. Yes, and that's that's very tricky. A lot of gray area. Not embarrass them. What does that really mean? It, sometimes it means understanding a little bit about the donor's motivations. Right. As long as it's factual. As long as long as you're you're sticking to facts in terms of property owned and prior gifts and notes from reports and things of that sort, rather than. Um, you know, allowing into your files, you know, hearsay or gossip and things of that sort. Is 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 that a professional standard? Well, absolutely. And I'll give you an example that might clarify a little bit. Um, I had a prospect, and I, I have a, a new person working for me, and she found that there was a bankruptcy and that the SEC in New Jersey had fined that prospect many years ago. The prospect has now gone into a completely different industry and has been very successful. It really didn't make sense to include anything about the SEC fine or the previous bankruptcy. We, we, we didn't know all of the details around any of those things. And the prospect now had significant wealth in a different industry. Um, you know, there's no criminal behavior that we found. So, you know, there's... There's a lot of gray area, but when we asked ourselves, will it further the relationship, whether we're looking for wealth or inclination to give, to include that past information, and we didn't feel that it met that threshold. And 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 that's is that a matter of professional sort of gut check, or is there a standard that that you would suggest? I don't think in ethics there's ever a really clear standard. Um, there, there are laws, privacy laws, that affect what we do, um, and public information that puts the prospect in a false light, you know, is there, 
there is law behind that, and that's still pretty gray and open to interpretation. I'll tell you where I think people get tripped up a lot um, with prospect research, whether it's, and you can chime in, Helen, a large place or a small place, is how much do we share? So we get our screening results back, or we've created a profile, you know, an in-depth report on an individual, all from public sources. Now we are going to go on a solicitation with our um, chair of the board. How much information about that prospect do we share? So is there another side to um, to this data, and that's who has access to it? Absolutely. And we need to think through carefully, you know, who has access to our digital records, who has access to our paper records, what should we be putting into digital, um, what should we keep in paper. Mm-hmm. And there are... And- just and where where do you go? Is is it these codes of ethics that you go to to identify um, how to make those decisions? Yeah, and actually, I was just um, going to say if you go to the APRA website, so that's the associate sorry Association of Professional Researchers for Advancement, and the website is aprahome a p r a h o m e dot org. And if you look under the APRA Community tab, you'll be able to find um, a slide-down menu that's called Professional Standards. And that's where the APRA's Code of Ethics is found and other professional standards. Um, And people might be interested in just knowing that that exists um, and reading about them there, I think, can really help um, make people understand our standards um, much more clearly. But I think it also um, can prove comforting to some people who might be, you know, wondering or worrying about um, information and its use in in prospect research. Right, right, right. So um, so moving uh, I, I back to the, the book a little bit, um, you mentioned in uh, in your book um, in identifying new prospects. Is, is that partly the wealth screening in that they're prior donors, but now they're new prospects for larger giving? Well, That's right. Um, it's uh, so what you want to do um, when you do an electronic screening is that it will identify people that perhaps have been twenty-five dollar donors over the past, you know, four or five years that you didn't even realize had the capacity to give gifts at a much higher level. So an electronic screening can identify those folks and allow you to um, find out who they are. Um, and put them on the lists of, then move them into prospect management. So you assign that person to a portfolio that goes within a prospect manager's portfolio, whether it's, you know, the one person major gift officer or whether it's, you know, one of a team of 10 fundraisers, um, and begin to cultivate and involve that donor. But that's really the basis of it is um, starting to identify and create um, qualified pools of prospects. And now, what's the difference um, in, in your book? You talk about the wealth screenings, and that's what we're focused on right now. What's the difference between that screening of your current donors and donor modeling? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I'll feel free to jump in here. Although, you know, when coming from the the smaller organizations, many times there isn't a good data set. So the database where all the gifts are recorded may be less than five years old. Maybe it was paper before that. Or maybe things weren't recorded um, accurately or in the same place every time. The larger the data set is, so once we're going 10,000 records or more, and you see that a lot at universities and hospitals because there's patients and alums, um, you have the opportunity now to use more statistical data modeling. And that's a whole new bag of tricks that allows you to do some, make some predictions about who's likely to give, not just who has wealth. Is that an accurate description, Helen? Do you, yeah, you and I think that what, what you're trying to do is you're trying to look at the, the, um, the characteristics 
of what are those people who are already our solid donors? What do they look like? Okay, so now we have a list of what those characteristics look like. They may be people who um, are graduates who also have a spouse who's a graduate. Um, they may be someone who um, was at um, was a member during a particular time, whatever those characteristics are. Okay, so now we have that list of characteristics of our best prospects. Now let's take those characteristics and apply them to the rest of the database so that we can see who else in the database looks like those people. And then that gives us a whole other group of people to, um, to start cultivating. Well, and, and in doing that um, that prospect, um, d do these companies direct you to new prospects? Or again, is this, uh, we didn't find actual indications of wealth, but they model close to other donors that you have? I mean, at what, what point are you looking outside of your own donor database? Or is your part of your message here that your best prospects are in your database right now? Well, well, I, I can always <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. My my philosophy is that you always need to start with your home first. Start with who are the people who already love you? Who are the people who have already said with their money, with their time, whatever it is, that they consider you worthy enough of their hard-earned dollars, right? So you start with that group. Then you move a little bit further out. Okay, now who are the friends of these people who are our donors? So we tend to look at that, um, who are the connections of our board members, right? Or who are the connections in the foundation world um, that we know through our board and through our top-level volunteers, mm -hmm. then going a little bit further out, then what are the companies that um, might make donations to us? Who else is in the community? So I like to start from the center and then move out. It doesn't mean that um, you, you certainly do want to look for um, donors that are outside of your database. I mean, obviously, you might, maybe you're an organization that sends out direct mail, or mm -hmm. maybe you're an organization that works very um, strongly through your board to identify community um, potential donors. Or maybe you go out to your vendors. Um, maybe that's an area you look as well. But it always makes sense to start with the people who love you most um, and cultivate that and build a strong so, so this foundation is a step -by -step there. step-by-step process that, that starts with the electronic screening of your current database, which sort of organizes your entire database um, around where your best prospects on to who are those folks that we don't know an awful lot about and so those get assigned to direct mail? Well, I think I think what a screening and modeling, what they do is they prioritize. So now I can pull a report that says, I want to see every person in my database who has a capacity rating score, you know, the ability to make a gift at or above 100,000, and who has a likelihood, a, a predicted likelihood to give score of, you know, whatever high rank. And where does that come from? Are, are all of the those come from the wealth screening companies? Are they all yeah. built similarly, or do you want to give us uh, some insight into who you think particularly has this kind of insight? You want us to name names, Ted? On this show, you can name names. I, 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 we try to provide the very best information uh, to our listeners, and so that's completely up to you. Well, you know, they all of the um, vendors, my opinion on this, Helen may not agree, all have a, a certain little niche. Um, they're always trying to define themselves differently. So, but is I that meaning? Is that is that meaningful or is that marketing? No, I think some of it is meaningful because uh, it's a very competitive market for the vendors and they're constantly innovating. And they're actually, I feel, constantly getting better at what they do. And the, it's different if you have 5,000 records versus 40, 50, 100,000. Um, and I, I feel they're pretty competitive. I have my favorites for you know, smaller organizations. Um, because of the suite of tools, they often come with a suite of tools. So they have their own proprietary um, ratings that they'll give you. 
And many times part of the screening, or almost all the time, is a subscription to their tools. So you can look mm -hmm. up information on your own. Do you have favorites, Helen, that <laughs> you want to talk about? <laughs> well, I think that one of the things that you just mentioned, Jen, is that um, all of the screening companies have a follow-on online tool that um, can be used. Some people find that they love one of the tools. Um, other people find that that is too basic for them and they want something more complicated or they want to be able to run uh, screenings, you know, upload um, files on their own and do that. So what I always tell clients is if you are thinking about um, going through a database screening and you're not going to use a prospect research consulting company to help you go through the process, then really think about what you um, – what you want that tool to look like. And what I always tell people is pick three companies, you know, do your research, go online, take a look at all of the, the different vendors, um, and, and, and then get in touch with them and say, I'd like to do a free one-week trial of your online web service. Then get the free trial the exact same week. So you're looking at three resources during the exact same week. Plug the exact same names into those three different services. So you plug in people that you know really well that are in your database, people that you don't know very well at all that are, that are in your database, and staff members, including yourself. Mm -hmm. Do that into all three and see what results that you get back. And that's really going to tell you a lot about how you feel about each tool that you've used, how easy it is to use, what kind of information you got back from it. Um, and I find that that often can tell you a lot. That one simple test that really only takes you know, maybe um, a few hours of your time to do it um, really is a great test to tell you what kind of product you want um, on the back end. And then in terms of which screening company to choose, they all have things, as Jen said, that are slightly different about them, that, that are a niche about them. So, and they're really good about putting on vendor um, demonstrations. So, mm -hmm. you know, I always say go through that process as well. But then also make sure that you ask them for references and call the references and say, how responsive were they? Did they do it when they say they were going to do it? What did you think about the results when they came back? If there was a problem, did they fix it? Um, and make sure that you you talk to the references because, you know, it may be that the product is absolutely great, but their customer service is terrible, um, okay. and that doesn't do you any good. Right. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get at least three names that are worth uh, checking uh, for these important services. So uh, we'll be uh, right back here on the Nonprofit Coach. Every day, millions of people are online, many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call to action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization, such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds, like Google Checkout, where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee, Google Sites to create a free website, and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today.
Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we are back here on uh, The Nonprofit Coach, and we are here live with Jennifer Fila and Helen Brown. So, ladies, uh, nonprofit organizations should test at least three electronic screening services before they make a decision at least three names. Okay, I'll give you four. How's Good, that? four. Great. <laughs> okay, and they are in alphabetical order. <laughs> That's good. Okay, so we've got DonorScape, DonorSearch, Find Wealth Online, which is a web, uh, sorry, Wealth Engine product, and ResearchPoint, which is Target Analytics, which is a Blackboard product. Okay. So in and those choosing- are all screening companies. All screening companies. Now, will they? Uh, what, what do the fees generally run, or what, what sort of a range that you've seen that that would that would seem um, acceptable or agreeable to you if my listeners were to encounter those quotes? Well, it depends on the size of the numbers. So, it's a lot cheaper to run a million records per record than it is to run a thousand records. Generally, so these companies speaking, run a thousand records. Is there a Sort of a minimum sure, they'll before run, they'll take you seriously? Oh, yeah, no, they'll run 100 records. I mean, okay. this, you know, they, they'll run any number that, that you've got. Um, but there's a, there's a baseline fee for, you know, for how much it costs. I generally okay. find that for, for kind of an average size pool, they tend to run about a dollar a record. Sometimes it's cheaper, some it's... If it's a smaller database, it might be slightly more than that, but you can figure that the average is about a dollar a record. So you, now, you should not be shocked include... if, it, if it's close to that, but if it if it were double that, then you would be scratching your head and asking questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing is, though, that the online service, the online web service, will usually be extra. So you'll pay an additional... Um, Fifteen hundred to I don't know ten thousand dollars, depending on how many seats you've got and how many users you've got um, for um, for access to the online web service. After that, mm-hmm. is that and, your experience, Jen? Yeah, and I think one of the things that um, sometimes the organization doesn't realize you you may only have small batches that you need to submit at a time if you're a smaller organization maybe for that gala that you're doing um, in addition to, you know, some of your donor records, you can do batches. So you can contract with a firm and you have to pay for maybe, you know, a thousand minimum, but you can do that in batches. You don't have to do a thousand at once. You can do it over a period of time. And that's very helpful for smaller organizations. Now, how, how, how important is this to have a service like this for a development office as opposed to I can do a Google search? Why wouldn't I do a Google search? Well, that's a really good question, Ted. And lots of people ask that question. And I think there's two reasons why you need more than a Google search. One, um, what is it, uh, 90% or 80 or 90% of the information on the Internet is not found through or not accessible through a search engine. Okay. People really... People really don't realize that you there are a lot of databases behind websites that are not available to the search engine. You have to know where to go. But if you're looking to raise more money, which should be the reason why you use prospect research, there's two situations you don't want to be in. One, you don't want to be at the table asking for a gift that's much lower than the prospect can give. Mm-hmm. And research helps you find that out. And two, on the identification side, you don't want to go into a campaign spending as much time with a $100,000 donor as you would with a $5 million donor. And you want you don't want to overlook some of your best, what turn out to be some of your best donors altogether. So I think, you know, for, for my end, a wealth screening tool, if someone has never done anything with their database and they're not going into campaign, maybe that's not the best option for identifying new prospects at the moment. 
but there are, you know, the, so, the large... So you're not going to always necessarily do it the same way that everybody else does. It's very focused on the type of organization you are, your particular prospect base. Right, and the, and the reason you're doing it. I mean, why do you want a wealth screening? What are you going to do with that information when it gets back? If you only have two people in your office, you really can't go after 300, 500 prospects identified. So it, it needs to match your goal. If you're a large organization and you have a dedicated team of major gift officers, you really need a lot of prospects to keep them busy and bringing in major gifts. Mm-hmm. So um, for most of, of uh, your time, uh, I, I believe, um, Helen, you have been with large organizations. So you you bring that perspective, but you've also consulted with and provided service to smaller organizations. Is the advice similar to 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 the the way that you approach prospect research? Well, it is in a way. Um, I, I think that my message to to fundraisers is you can either spend time sitting at your desk looking at Google um, and taking lots and lots of time to find not as much information as you could use to either hire a prospect researcher, either internally or externally, and have them know exactly where and how to get to the information much more efficiently. Um, and it allows the fundraiser to be out on the road instead of sitting behind their desk and doing prospect research. So um, it really doesn't matter whether you're a small organization or a large organization. Utilizing prospect research can really truly help maximize the time that a nonprofit has and maximize the time that a, a frontline fundraiser has so that they're not wasting time doing something that they really need to be doing something else instead, raising money. So what is the balance? Well, it's a balance. I would, you know, one of the fun conversations that's been going recently in our field, and, and Helen did a great blog post on it, was, you know, are we going to lose out to Google? And that that struggle for what is prospect research, and, and I, I think sometimes we forget to include that frontline fundraiser because peer review is a prospect research tool, that's been used since long before technology, long before Google. Um, Helen was at the forefront of that, uh, making that very methodical in her organization. And we also have relationship mapping. I mean, now we have fun technology tools for that too, but we still used to do it the brainstorming way and still can um, with, for example, our trustees. So it's not entirely limited to a prospect researcher who's skilled. It's a matter of knowing what tools are the best to use in the situation and who's the best person to use them. You know, do I need to hire an experienced prospect researcher because I have more um, good prospects than I can handle? You know, I can't sit down in front of my desk if I'm going to be going out meeting them, so now's the time to make that switch. So, so in other words, all data is not the same. I mean, what, what Google no. treats everything as as if it's equally important, um, but with professional insight and consultants that can help you, you can narrow in on what is significant and what your organization needs to focus on. Much yeah. more effectively, yes. Yeah, and we live in a world where everyone should understand basic search technique. I mean, do you need to pay a full-time researcher to look up a company bio for you before you make a phone call to a prospect? No. Um, but if you're going to ask for a $5 million gift, you really should have someone who knows what they're doing find the information for you so you can provide the best mm-hmm. solicitation strategy for that prospect. Mm-hmm. So I think every organization has to find that balance. For some, it's going to be really obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, for some, it's do we buy that latest and greatest tool? Will that boost, you know, the number of prospects we find, or not? We have a, an email a, a question from uh, Carol in Detroit, and she's asking, what is the correct number of prospects for a major gift officer? 
<laughs> Good question. I know my number is, um, is for a dedicated gift officer is around 100, depending on the types of prospects. But I'm curious to hear from you, Helen. Well, I absolutely agree with you, but that would be for sort of a, a general um, prospect manager, for someone who is a principal gifts officer, um, senior vice president, somebody at that level, it might be as low as 10 or 20. Um, for somebody who's a road warrior, you know, their job is to go out and do those initial um, just, you know, qualification visits. It might be as many as 150. It might be 200. I mean, I I used to work with this guy who truly, he was one of the best road warriors I knew. And he could go through a portfolio of 150 every single year um, and help. I mean, his job was just to go meet with the folks and then help move them into the correct other prospect portfolios um, that the other prospect managers had. Um, it was really efficient. It worked well. But, you know, I mean, he he could do that. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't expect that from uh, from most uh, gift officers. So, so those those are rough numbers in terms of if you're hiring someone and what you can expect. Because we have a lot of listeners who are, have smaller shops, or maybe it's an executive director who's trying to determine, you know, how do I hire somebody who's going to be really effective and and efficient in helping me? Um, how do I evaluate whether or not they're being successful? True. Another, Another thing I wanted to ask you to sort of weigh in on, because I find that a number of development officers, certainly probably not on purpose, but um, sort of uh, I just need one more piece of data. I I can make the ask if I do a little bit more research. When is enough enough? Analysis paralysis. Yeah, that's – I I actually had a phone call from someone who found me on the Internet – and she said, you know, I've told my board, I can't make a single phone call until I have a research profile on every single one of these prospects. And maybe that's an extreme example, but um, any time research is holding you back from getting a gift from a prospect who's, you know, ripe and ready to give, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Helen, do you have, are there, are there any standards or um, policies that you see in place that at maybe institutes of higher ed that, See, I think that that's that's an instance where um, a prospect review meeting works really well. And a prospect review meeting can just be um, the the prospect manager and their supervisor, whoever that is, hopefully a, a more seasoned fundraiser, who can also take a look at the information that's in front of them. Sometimes it's just a, you know what, we've got all the information that we can possibly get from research. Now we just have to go and do the very best we can with the information that we've got. Um, we don't want to get that kind of paralysis. You know, I mean, it's it may well be that this isn't the best gift that you could have gotten, but hopefully you're you're creating a lifelong relationship with this donor. It's not going to be a one gift and you're done kind of thing. So hopefully there are other gifts down the road. You know what else? I, I was just thinking um, a, a lot of times development professionals – get into the job, and they're not always given the best training on how to take a person from their first gift to the organization to a major gift. And it's intimidating, and it's scary, and they kind of procrastinate on making those phone calls and maybe use research as an excuse when that's available, Um, and not intentionally necessarily. But I think when you have really good, uh, a really good prospect research professional, you get so much more than data. Um, and this is the conversation that's been going on, you get strategic information. So I can tell you, you know, not just what they own and where they've given, but give you suggestions as the fundraiser. Well, you know, they're this kind of donor based on their giving history. Invite them to this kind of event. Introduce them to these kinds of people. And sometimes that segue, whether it's in a prospect review meeting um, officially or sort of unofficially in a smaller office, I think can go a long way towards helping the development professional move forward with their prospect. Well, I find it interesting that because I, I think that there there's sort of a school of thought that's moved um, is so much closer to the electronic screening side that almost that's enough. And it sounds to me that uh, you're really advocating for using that as a 
a precursor to the traditional face-to-face um, volunteer and staff review before the strategy is put together. Yeah, it's a first step. It's not because I, I think for a lot of, yeah, I, I think for, I think for a lot of organizations, um, they're used to doing that kind of activity because that's all that they've known. So you're bringing this new concept into um, uh, the the field here, but it's not a substitute. No, I mean, first you identify the prospects and, and figure out, you know, who the best ones are, but that's just the beginning of the story. I mean, the identification of them, um, then you, you learn more about what it is that makes them tick. What is, what is it about our organization that provides that spark that's going to be transformational? And that can be transformational for the donor um, as well as for the organization, but you know, where do we want to um, involve them? Now, that's a combination. That's prospect research that's primary prospect research that may be in a face-to-face meeting with the the potential donor themselves, coupled with information that a prospect researcher can find um, that's in the sorts of databases that we talked about, LexisNexis and and other biographical um, databases that are – much more than what Google can offer. That kind of um, compilation of information, the aggregation of that kind of, to create a much more dynamic picture of the prospect and really the kinds of things that motivate them or interest them. I mean, as Jen said, you might do research on someone and a professional researcher will take a look at all the information and say, you know what I'm noticing is that every time an organization puts this person on their board of directors, I'm noticing that two to three years later, there's a major gift that's happening here, or there's a million-dollar gift that's happening every time I notice that this person has made a chair of a campaign. There's a, there's a million-dollar gift that happens. That is not something that you're going to be able to find through Google. That is somebody who is taking a look at all of the data that's in front of them and able to, to extrapolate and say to a frontline fundraiser, Here's the information, but here's what it means. Here's what it means. And I think yeah. that that's the, that's the crucial part that prospect research plays today. I don't think that it always did. Prospect research used to be much more just sort of the aggregation of information and letting the fundraisers sort of figure it out for themselves. These days, prospect research is much more strategic. Mm-hmm. It, 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 so it's, it's not just the research, it's the analysis. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, bingo. <laughs> yeah. And it's and the analysis, you know, we get all these uh technologies that appear more user friendly. We have dashboards and it makes graphs for us. But if we have no idea what that means, how to translate that into actions with our donors, we're still pretty lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's and that's really where working with a professional can make such a, a big difference for the organization um, in terms of being efficient. Because if you're limited on your staffing, then you need to be as focused as you can be. Absolutely, and also supporting and making sure that if you're working with an in-house prospect researcher, making sure that they continue to be trained. Because you know, as we all know, the technologies, all of the resources that we're using, they're changing every single. Well, second, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that doesn't make sense is to have an in-house prospect researcher who, you know, you hire them, but you don't give them the tools to do what they need to do, or you don't right. give them the continuing education that allows them to be on the cutting edge. Um, and so that is really important, too. It's not just whether you do it in-house or whether you hire a prospect researcher to um, to make sure that they have the the resources that they need to do the job well. But what a terrific book as part of the AFP Fund Development Series, Prospect Research for Fundraisers, The Essential Handbook. Uh, today here on The Nonprofit Coach, we have had two eminent experts in this area. Um, ladies, we're coming down to the final few seconds of the show, so uh, please share with my audience how can they reach Helen Brown. Um, thanks very much. It's been wonderful to be here. Um, you can reach me through my website at www.helenbrowngroup.com or you can email me at helen at helenbrowngroup.com. Also, I'm on Twitter at AskHelenBrown. That's perfect. And Jennifer Fila. Yes, um, it was fun. Thanks for having us, Ted. 
And I can be found at aspireresearchgroup.com. I'm also on Twitter, at Jen Phila, and available email, all those good things. I have a kind of odd name, so it's pretty easy to find me. That's terrific. Well, ladies, thank you so much. Have a wonderful summer. This is the last show of The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, As we now go into our summer hiatus, we will be back live here on a weekly basis, again, starting September 10th. So take us with you on summer vacation and enjoy the time away from The Nonprofit Coach. Ladies, have a terrific, terrific summer. Thanks. Thanks. You too. Take care. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus if you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.